It's an old hymn with a new idiom. <laughs> Amen. I've been redeemed. I like that. That's not the way we sang it when I was a boy, but it's the same song. <laughs> but you know, uh, in the body of Christ, we need to remember all you people that love worship and praise choruses, you didn't invent worship. It was going on a long time before those came around. Amen? Now, on the other hand, worship didn't die when Fanny Crosby died. I mean, it's, there's still songs coming. You know, God hasn't parked himself over here in the corner of heaven and said, now that's all there is. No more songs going to be written with any blessing. And uh, it's a great day in the body of Christ when you can uh, listen to a worship and and uh, praise song and say, yep, praise God. Maybe it's not my choice, but anyway, praise God. Somebody praising God. How did I get on this? Let's get on. Today, we're going to begin a journey to the cross. Our journey will take us about seven weeks, but it's a journey to the cross. I invite your attention to the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. And I want us to look at the most magnificent example of all in learning how to handle life's difficult times by examining Jesus on the way to the cross. I'm reminded that in chapter 13 of Luke, verse 31, there were some good Pharisees. Did you know that? On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Perhaps they thought enough of Jesus to say, you better move on. I mean, Herod is out for you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. <laughs> uh, you probably shouldn't be calling people names, but Jesus did call Herod a fox. <laughs> Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day, I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And here is the lament of laments. And everyone who's read the New Testament knows that this is always in red letters. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. And there is, every time Jesus uses that word doubly, any word doubly, there is special emphasis. Oh, Simon, Simon, he said, verily, verily. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often... I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting thing about that is that Luke has Jesus saying this before he gets to Jerusalem. And the other Gospels have him saying that after he's been there, so perhaps there's double meaning, both when he comes in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the Passion Week, that may be first what he means, but also when he comes again the second time. 
and Israel really does receive him as king at his second coming to set up his kingdom. And he says, behold, he who comes in the name of the Lord. I, I think I, I gather the double meaning is what I take that. There's a double reference here. As Jesus moved toward his death date with destiny, he met disappointment and refused its mastery over him, leaving us a model for managing disappointment in our lives. That's what I'd like to talk about for a while today. How do I manage disappointment in my life? You ever been disappointed? You ever been disappointed in what somebody did or said? Have you ever been disappointed in how events came out? Did you ever try out for the basketball team and get cut? Did you ever try out for cheerleader squad not make it? Did you ever go for a job interview and you knew it was God's will and you never got a call back? Have you ever put a lot of confidence in somebody and at a crucial moment they let you down? How can we as believers manage disappointment? I see disappointment written all over the words and the heart and the soul of Jesus in this passage. There were some good Pharisees who said, get out of here. Please leave this place. Because Herod wants to get you. Herod is Herod Antipas, who rules over Galilee and Perea. And uh, Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. How do I know that? Go back to, um, uh, oh, go back to verse 22 here. And of the same chapter, Jesus went through the cities and villages teaching. And what does it say, class? Underline that. Journeying toward where? Jerusalem. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not saying that Jesus had never been to Jerusalem since he was 12 years old. I think, I think it's axiomatic in the text that he had often been to Jerusalem, but nobody recorded it. How do I know that? Because he said, how often would I have gathered you under my wings. Now that implies that he had been there and he had wept over Jerusalem before. He had been moved by Jerusalem. And so he is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, there are three things you see clearly, quickly to understand the text. First, there is the assertion of his sovereignty. Verse 32. Go tell that fox, Herod. <laughs> now, a fox implied two things. Somebody who was very cunning and very wily and also something very insignificant. Tell old Herod he's not as important as he thinks he is. That old cunning sly thing. He got caught in his cunning and his wiles when he, he thought he would offer something to his girlfriend that he was trying to steal from another man and she asked for the head of John the Baptist and he had, he had to kill poor old John in order to please that woman, and he, I think he regretted that. <laughs> I believe he did regret it. If he didn't regret it then, he regretted it now. <laughs> but anyway, he said, go tell that fox. Now watch. Today I'm casting out demons. Tomorrow I'm casting out demons and healing people. And the third day I shall reach my goal. I shall be perfected. It's teleuomai. Tele and it means I shall come to my goal. I shall be perfected. Jesus is saying, Herod, there is nothing you can do to stop me from carrying out my mission of bringing healing and casting out demons. And on the third day, and surely the early church knew what he meant by that. 
I will die, and then on the third day I will rise. All kinds of implications Jesus is throwing in here. But what he's saying is, Herod cannot stop me from doing what is God's sovereign will. I will make it to the cross, I will carry out my ministry, and I will be raised up. I will, uh, I will accomplish the will of God. Secondly, there is the assurance of his goal. Again, he says it, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following... For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I'll keep on going. Because I'm a prophet and Jerusalem is where all the prophets have been stoned and killed over all the ages. Again, he's saying, I will reach my goal of Jerusalem. And there I will die in exact fulfillment of prophecy. And Herod, you will not stop me. I don't know about you, but I take great confidence and great uh, peace in that. God is going to accomplish his will through your life one way or another. And if you are God's woman doing God's will and God's way for God's glory and God's time and God's place, I'm telling you, nothing can stop you. Hear me. Nothing can stop you. The third thing I see is next. There's the announcement of his destiny, his death. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Don't you understand as a prophet, I will be in Jerusalem also. I will come also and I will not perish outside of Jerusalem. He is saying, I'm going to, to, uh, to die. I don't know that all the disciples fully understood that. In another one of the gospel accounts, when Jesus told Peter, Peter said, boy, I'll never let you die. You're not going to die as long as I'm around. I, I won't let you die. And Peter had not grasped that that was his will. That was God's will. Christ had to die. And then he says, how often, verse 34, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing I'm standing on the edge of my grandfather's barnyard. Do you know what a chicken hawk looks like? Have you ever seen a chicken hawk? Have you ever seen one start circling and then they'll light on the barn and then they'll watch the hens in the barnyard and they'll watch for the little chicks in the barnyard? That's an ominous time for a mother hen. That's the word picture Jesus draws here. The hen sees the chicken hawk ready to grab one of those little chicks and swallow it up and take it off and peck it to death and eat it and have a luscious unfried chicken meal. Or have you ever stood at the edge of a barnyard and watched a huge storm approaching with billowing black clouds and clashing thunder and brilliant lightning streaking across the sky and the hen runs with those little chicks follow after her as fast as they can and she gets in the corner of the haymow and they all get under her and she just plops those wings down over them. Second word picture. Jesus said, I've watched as Rome has devoured you, Jerusalem. I've watched as, as your religious legalism devoured you. I've watched as your greed and selfishness devoured you, Jerusalem. And I wanted so badly to gather you under my wings and protect you. But underline the words, verse 34. 
in every translation is expressed in some way. But you were not willing. You were not willing. You were not willing. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding how to mesh the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We don't quite figure it out. But I'm here to announce something to you. If Jesus could not make Jerusalem believe, you can't make somebody else do what they don't want to do either. Did you know that? And the sooner we learn that, the better off we are. If Jesus could not force Jerusalem to receive him and they rejected him, Jesus said, I loved you, I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing, you would not, you would not, you would not, you would not. I think here's the source of Jesus' disappointment. He wanted them to repent. He wanted Jerusalem to receive him. He wanted Jerusalem to know the blessings of the Messiah. But they were not willing. They were not willing. Now there are three ways, there are three aspects of the will of God you need to fix firmly in your mind. There's the sovereign will of God and that is not for prayer and it is not for sale and it is not for negotiation and it is not up for grabs. The sovereign will of God. Hear me. That will will be done whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not. It isn't up for vote. It's not up for sale. The sovereign will of God is that Christ will go to the cross. The sovereign will of God is that I will be put into the image of Christ. God's going to get me. That's the sovereign will of God. He's absolutely guaranteed that. He'll do whatever it takes to get you into the image of, of Christ, the moral image of Christ. Then there's the moral will of God. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. The moral will of God. Now you have a choice about that one. You can choose to obey, but if you do, there are what? Consequences. There are consequences. God's expressed exactly what he wants, but he doesn't force you to do it. Why? Because we're made in the image of God and we have wills and we can choose to obey or disobey. But the third aspect of the will of God is the wisdom will. That's what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, be wise and knowing what the will of God is. This morning I got up and I had a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast. And I chose that over eggs and bacon and grits and butter. And I chose oatmeal, just a little brown sugar in it. I made that choice. Once I made that choice, that was the will of God. I made that choice, not because the book of, of Deuteronomy says, thou shalt eat oatmeal, not because it's the sovereign will of God that I eat oatmeal every morning. It's the wise will of God that I take care of my body and try to cut down on my fat grams and my cholesterol and my, all the rest of my alls. That's the wisdom will of God. Young people always keep that in mind. Sovereign, moral, and wisdom will of God. But because Jerusalem fought the sovereign will of God, Jesus expresses massive disappointment with Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Therefore, he says in verse 35, your house is left to you desolate. 
deserted. I'm going to leave you to yourself. I'm going to leave you to reap the consequences of what you have sown. You shall not see me again until the time comes when you say, I'll leave you alone. I have given you my grace, but now I leave you alone until I come again and set up my kingdom. And you say, and all Israel agrees and willingly accepts me as their king and Lord to set up my reign for a thousand years. Now, sometimes we're disappointed as Jesus was by the behavior of people, a class of people, sometimes by events. Sometimes by a person, sometimes by circumstances, but disappointment always has to do with failure to satisfy one's wishes or demands or expectations. It has to do with what we expect, and when someone doesn't come up to those expectations, we are disappointed. Because we feel this person is appointed to be like this, and when they don't come up to our expectations, we are disappointed. Disappointed. Shirley and I were sitting in a motel one day this week. Actually, I was going out walking, and I was waiting for her to come down and walk with me, and I sat on this little, this little bench, and a lady walked in, and I had on just some old clothes to walk in, and she looked at me and then she looked to the left in this Hampton Inn where some people were still eating breakfast and sweet rolls. And as she walked by me, I heard her whisper to her husband, this is a low class of people here. <laughs> she just looked at me. <laughs> I wanted to stand up and say, beg your pardon, ma'am. And I thought I'd just let some slobber hang down, you know, and say, why are you sure I'm low class? You know, I come made me mad. <laughs> this is a low class of people in here, she said. Actually, I thought it was pretty high class, didn't you? <laughs> but it struck me how different are the expectations we have of what is and is not acceptable in people. And every one of us has that to deal with. We marry this man and we think he's going to be like this and he's like this. We, we, we do business. We go into business with this man and we expect him to be like this and he's like this. We get started with his teacher and my child in the second grade does very well and then after one week, we find out she isn't as, as esteem affirming as we thought she was and we're disappointed. How do you handle the disappointments of life? How do you respond to things that are less than perfect? How do we build a balance between idealism and realism? Some of us are perfectionists, so we're much more idealistic. And there's, there's nothing wrong with having high ideals. I, I mean, I, I, there's some things I want 100% on. I don't want 99.9%. .9%. I don't want a doctor to operate on me and said I got a 99.9% .9 chance you're going to be all right when it's done. I, I don't want a pilot to get behind that plane and say, got a 99% chance I can fly this plane. I want 100% when I'm involved. Amen? I mean, there are, there are times when our idealism has to be held high and held up. Leonardo da Vinci said, after he had finished his greatest work, now listen to this. You want to hear a perfectionist? I have offended God and man. 
kind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Now, if Leonardo da Vinci said that, where does that leave the rest, of, the rest of us? I want you to see how Jesus handled it. Now, I'm going to go back and look at this incident. Here, here we are. First, Jesus adjusted his expectations because it's almost always true that disappointment comes. The higher our expectations, the greater the possibility of disappointment. Do you remember in John 6 when Jesus had some people following him, watching all the miracles? And in verse 64, some of them said, Jesus said, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And from that Time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, now, you and I don't have perfect knowledge the way Jesus did. He would have been disappointed that some of the people followed him for the miracles, but when the going got tough, they left him. But he had to change his expectations based upon what he knew. Now, that's always step number one in managing disappointment is adjust your expectations. With children, teach your children they cannot have everything they want. Now, don't destroy their capacity to dream, but be sure to teach children they cannot have everything they want. If a child has everything he wants, what you do is set him up to always expect more, and you set him up for enormous disappointment in life. Secondly, teach children to temper idealism by teaching and discussing them with them how people act so they're not surprised. You've often heard me say one of the best ways to navigate life is to reduce your expectations of people. Because I have learned not to be surprised at anything anybody does. I'm not surprised at anything anybody in this church does. I've learned not to be surprised. I've learned to take it in stride. Because of the nature of human nature. Thirdly, always teach your children to focus on what they can change and not on what they cannot change. To me, one of the most common mistakes in the Christian's life is that we are constantly focusing on the things that ought to change but we cannot change rather than focusing on the things we can change. It's a lifestyle mistake to spend your life condemning, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, putting other people down, criticizing when there's not a thing you can do about it. Jesus adjusted his expectations. He, he wept, perhaps. He was moved, perhaps. But he realized that the city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, were simply not willing to yield to him. And in personal relationships, sometimes you're going to have to do that. You have to adjust your expectations. And remember that people have a right to make mistakes and fall short of the glory of God. Why be surprised? The Bible has already told us that's the way people are. Secondly, he added to his understanding. He said, 
I wanted to gather you. I'm disappointed you didn't come. You didn't respond to my message, but you were not willing. And in that statement, Jesus isn't shouting over a loudspeaker to all of Israel. He's not on television broadcasting on cable to Jerusalem. He is talking to himself. He is basically speaking to himself. I wanted to gather you. My heart was for you, but you were not willing. He is saying, I am understanding that it is your sin and it is your greed and your materialism that keeps you from receiving me. And so it is with other people. When I try to understand why I'm disappointed in somebody, invariably it comes down not only to adjusting to my expectations, but trying to get a better understanding of why that person didn't do what he said he was going to do, or why that woman didn't say what she should have said, or why this event didn't come out the way it should have come out. There's no need to punish myself or other people. Let me just try to understand let me come to an understanding. And Jesus came to the understanding that the will of man, being what it was, they would not accept him. Now, when will you accept that? When will you learn to do that? When will I learn to do that? So we don't set ourselves up for disappointment. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 1, David says to Jonathan, when Saul keeps on chasing him, and Saul keeps on trying to kill him. Do you remember what David said? It's a, it's a word of frustration, but it's a word of disappointment. David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before my father that he seeks my life? Why, why is he doing this? David is seeking understanding. Somebody explain to me why Saul is treating me this way when I've only served him well and now he keeps trying to kill me. Somebody please give me understanding. Please help me to understand why Saul's doing this to me. I think it's always the step for the Christian to try to get some understanding. I wouldn't get possessed with the disappointment. But I think we always need to try to look underneath and find out why. There may be a reason that will help you to accept your lowered expectations if you can just understand why. The third thing Jesus did was he acknowledged his responsibility. In Luke 13 verse 35, you see Jesus saying to them, your house is left to you desolate. And as surely I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes. Now what he's doing here is he is holding Jerusalem accountable and pronouncing doom and judgment on them. Now the question for us when we face disappointment is, what have I done that brought about? Have I made any contribution to this disappointment? Then the next question is, what can I do to help that person be responsible and accountable in the future? I have three little questions I like to ask myself in a situation like that. The first is, have I contributed to this disappointment in any way? If it's a staff member, I'm going to say to him, how have I how have, what have I done that contributed to this? Second question I'm going to ask is, what can I learn from this disappointment? And the third question is, what can the other person learn from this? 
And that's where holding the other person accountable. Jesus said, your house is left desolate. I'm going to leave you to yourself. Sometimes, somewhere, somehow, when you've been disappointed, you have an obligation to go through those three questions. And when appropriate, you have an obligation to confront in love and kindness, considering yourself first. First Samuel chapter 15. Samuel the prophet had given Saul a job to go destroy King Agag and not bring anything back. And as he comes back, he hears the bleeding of the sheep. And he says to him, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Why did you not obey? And he confronted him, so disappointed. Here, God told you to choose this king. Israel cried for a king. God responded with Samuel. You've cho- I mean, with Saul. Now, Samuel, you've anointed Saul. Now he goes off, and in his first test, he flunks the test and disappoints God. And Samuel. The fourth and last thing that we see Jesus doing here is applying his grace. He applied his grace, and that's our role. He said, You won't see me, but I am coming back. I will come back, I will set up my kingdom, I will rule over Israel, and there will be a time that will come in the future when Israel will be regathered and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last thing Jesus did was apply his grace. And in disappointment, that's our role. That is exactly what God wants from us. It is to apply grace where there has been disappointment. So let me adjust my expectations. Let me add to my understanding. Let me acknowledge my responsibility. And let me apply the grace of God. John 8, woman's caught in adultery. Pharisees all want to stone her. I love it. Jesus says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. You will have a right never to be disappointed again when you are perfect. Amen? You should never be disappointed. Once you can prove perfection, then you should never have a right to be disappointed again. But as long as you are less than perfect, only 99 and 44, 100% pure, as long as that's true, you have no right to be too disappointed. Because you have no right by your disappointment to judge somebody else's shortcomings until you... That's really what Jesus is saying. So we've all been given grace by God, haven't we? Shirley and I were at the National Prayer Breakfast this week and Ben Carson, the chief of neurosurgery at at Johns Hopkins, the the black surgeon who separated the Siamese twins, he he gave a talk. Remember, he's standing 4,000 people for breakfast. And over here, the president and his wife, and over here's the vice president and his wife. Here are cabinet members. Here are all these Congress people. Here are 15 or 20 heads of state. And he stands and he says, This is what he said. I heard it with my own eyes. <laughs> he said, You know, as long as you tell the truth, you never have to wonder what you said six months ago. <laughs> And then he said, as long as you live pure, you never have to worry about anybody pulling uh, skeletons out of your closet. 
I said, can you imagine the impact on this crowd of that? <laughs> but you know, there's a sense in which the moment we are hurt and disappointed by other people's shortcomings, we're assuming that we're so much better than them, we would have done it differently. That's precisely Jesus' point. Consider yourself. Which one of us has not been the recipient of grace? Which one of us is without sin? I have a very dear friend who is a powerful influence on me in the ministry by the name of Todd Taylor. Todd pastored in a suburban St. Louis area. He's been here preaching several times. I was with him when I had my heart attack. He was a lifesaver. I shall never forget him. This morning, he's in bed, unable to recognize anybody. And that virile, robust man is dying of liver cancer. He made me promise one day that whenever he died, I would come and take care of his funeral for him. And I said, yes, whenever, wherever, however, count on it. I will do that. But I want to close with a little story. Last April, when Shirley and I felt emotionally equipped to go back and retrace all of our steps, I knew the history of this man. He had built a great church, running over a thousand in Sunday school, at Calvary Baptist Church in this little, in this suburban town. And at the height of his ministry, a little clan of people got together and decided that they wanted to get rid of him. I think it was the devil, pure and simple. And they fired him. They told lies about him and chased him out of the church that he built. They were nothing. They were running a hundred when he came. Now they're running a thousand. The dollar signs got so big in their eyes they ran him out. Tim, that's exactly what they did. He went down the road and started another church. He built that church. It was that new building that seats a thousand that I was there dedicating when I had my heart attack. And then when he retired, nothing the church said they were going, or very little of what the church said they were going to do, did they do. And a new pastor came in and set him out of his office. They wouldn't even let him have an office in the building. And I stood with him last April. And he said to me, I'm so disappointed in the people of God. He said, I spent all my life building churches. He led the state of Illinois in baptisms. And he said, I'm a man without a church. I don't have any place to go. I went to bed that night, burdened. I could hardly sleep. This happened last April. I got up the next morning and I said, Todd, I want you to go with me. We're going to go back to that Calvary Baptist Church that's now back to running about 225. They got a new pastor. We're going to meet that new pastor. I'm going to look that pastor in the eye and tell him that reconciliation has to be made, that peace has to be made, that you cannot live with this disappointment and this treatment any longer. And we did exactly what Jesus did to Jerusalem. We went to confront the corporate situation. The pastor melted. He said, I want this to be right. Since that day, Todd has been able to go back and join that church. This morning, the rest of his family is rejoining that church. And today, those same people who threw him out 20 years ago are there at his bedside taking care of him and loving him when he doesn't even know who they are. 
God has a way of overruling disappointment when we manage it the way Jesus did and try to follow the path of the Lord Jesus. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem and he weeps because of his disappointment over the city. And you know, there's a way that God's been disappointed in you. He had such high hopes for you. His grace was available. His blood cleansed you, but somehow you never surrendered to him. What are you going to do about how you disappointed God? Or maybe you've been disappointed with somebody and you've let it control you and dominate you and master you. And Jesus says, bring that disappointment to me. I can share it with you. I've been there. I've been hurt. I know what it's been like. And he'll say to you, come on, bring that disappointment to me. And I will find a way to make it right and to overrule it by my sovereign hand. But you cannot hide it. You cannot hold it. You cannot keep it. You must give it back to him in order to get rid of it. Christ loved you enough to go to the cross to die for your sins. And there's no other way to be saved. God created man for fellowship with him and man disappointed him. But God said, I'll not let the disappointment stand. I'll take my son, my only son, and send him to the cross for you. And that's exactly what he did to overcome disappointment that we brought into God's life because we became fallen creatures. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for the power of the Word of God. I thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lord, who went to the cross. And I pray that you will speak to those who've never been saved, who do not know Christ as Lord, and draw them to yourself and speak to those who started out with such high idealistic hopes as a Christian, and then they fell by the wayside, and, and money entered in, and lust entered in, and greed entered in, and materialism entered in, and kept them from being what you wanted them to be. They disappointed you, but oh God, your love is so great, you offer to take them just as they are right back. Do it this morning and speak to each of us about the issues in Jesus' name. Amen.